if you've been around a bit in the world of our books, then you will certainly remember A.B. Bookman's Weekly, a weekly magazine that was begun in the late 1940s as a vehicle for advertising used in rare books, both books wanted and books for sale. Saul M. Malkin founded A.B. Bookman's Weekly in 1948 and with his wife, Marianne O'Brien Malkin, edited it for a generation. The Malkin sold A.B. in the early 1970s and it continued in business under the direction of Jake Chernofsky until 1999 when it ceased operation, superseded by the internet. The magazine's editorial content was of interest to the overlapping worlds of used and rare bookselling, research, librarianship, and book collecting. Its front matter consisted of trade news of interest to dealers, collectors, and librarians, and it included, in the earlier days, a column written by Jacob Blank, providing news, musings, and gossip about the trade, which everybody read. In 1984, Marianne Malkin began to support an annual lecture in honor of Saul Malkin's contribution to the antiquarian book trade. Michael Winship, who is here with us tonight, gave the first Saul M. Malkin Lecture in Bibliography under Book Arts Press auspices at Columbia University in December 1985. In time for Saul Malkin to congratulate him on his performance, though Mr. Malkin himself was too ill to attend. Indeed, Saul Malkin died in 1986, a few months after Michael Winship had delivered the lecture. Malkin lectures over the years have included Greer Allen, Nicholas Barker, William Barlow, Robert Darnton, Miriam Foote, Christopher DeHamel, Lucian Goldschmidt, Selby Kiefer, Catherine Kais Lieb, Paul Needham, William S. Reese, Kenneth Rendell, Bernard M. Rosenthal, Anthony Rodo, Justin Schiller, Roger Stoddard, G. Thomas Tansel, and Marjorie Gray Wynn. I know there are a number of people in the audience who know every single one of those very, very interesting people. Our speaker this evening is Richard Wendorf, currently the Stanford Catherwood Director and Librarian of the Boston Athenaeum. He was formerly Professor of English Literature and Dean of the College at Northwestern University and later Librarian of the Houghton Library at Harvard. His most recent book is After Sir Joshua, Essays on British Art and Cultural History, just published for the Paul Mellon Center for Studies in British Art by the Yale University Press, just published. This is the first copy in America. Also published this year is Richard Wendorf's book, The Scholar Librarian, Books, Libraries, and the Visual Arts, co-published by the Boston Athenaeum and by Oaknell Books. This is only the end of July 2005, Richard. At your present rate of productivity, we expect at least a third, and preferably a fourth book this year. Meanwhile, here's Richard Wendorf to talk about the scholar librarian. It's a great pleasure to welcome him back to the University of Virginia for his fourth Brigham School Lecture. Well, thank you, Terry, for that lovely introduction. You know, Terry's introductions are usually rather shorter than the one he just gave. And I used to tease him saying that the motto at Rare Book School should be, 
ars longa curriculum vitae brevis. <laughs> but that was a lovely introduction. Thank you so much. It's a great pleasure for me to be here at Rare Book School again in Charlottesville and a great privilege to give the Malkin Lecture. And what a pleasure to be able to do it with Marianne here. Thank you, dear, for your wonderful support at Rare Book School and for being such a wonderful friend and supporter to me for many, many years now. And what a pleasure to be able to speak in this wonderful room. What I'm going to do this evening is preach to the choir, for the most part, uh, because I think you will be sympathetic listeners to the pitch I have to make. But this lecture, entitled The Scholar Librarian, in its printed form will probably irritate a number of people, especially and ironically some who work within American research libraries. Ironically, I suggest, because any attempt to articulate the importance of librarians pursuing independent research will face pockets of resistance among those who are thought in both the academic and the common imagination to be the central facilitators of such scholarship. There are those, for instance, who will argue that the battle is over. University librarians used to aspire towards faculty rank and status. They used to take pride in serving as a kind of shadow professoriate. But librarians have now set themselves apart with their own reward systems and with technological skills that many faculty members could not even begin to comprehend. And then there are those who will argue that my title is redundant, that many librarians are partially or fully engaged in scholarly research by the very nature of their jobs as they catalog books, for example, or work behind a reference desk. To talk about scholar-librarians might be construed by them to be doubly insulting, for it could ignore the scholarly work they do perform while suggesting, at the same time, that what really counts is scholarly activity pursued apart from their institutional responsibilities. How much more can one ask for, anyway? And then there are those who will argue that such an argument is essentially self-serving, that it attempts to justify one's own commitment to a scholarly life by drawing attention to one's own accomplishments. Or even worse, the name itself sounds old-fashioned, redolent of Arnold's scholar-gypsy or Altic's scholar-adventurer or, God forbid, a gentleman and a scholar. Why attempt to raise such a fusty banner in the first place? For a number of important reasons, I think. I shall suggest... But never, never, for prescriptive reasons. My argument is going to be polemical, but it's not intended to be dogmatic. I strongly believe in the pursuit of scholarly activities by librarians. But I'm not arguing here that all librarians should pursue such activities. Nor do I mean to denigrate those who are not engaged in such a pursuit. Scholar librarians are not, in my brief, elevated above their institutional colleagues. The nature of their interest is, however, sometimes misunderstood. And this lecture should therefore be construed as an apology, as a classical defense on their behalf. My remarks are addressed to those department heads, library directors, provosts, and deans who hire, promote, and reward librarians within institutional structures that are increasingly corporate and bureaucratic. Some of these libraries, as I know from my own experience, can be actively hostile towards the kind of intellectual independence 
such scholarly research represents. Surely it is time for clarity, if not for outright detente. Perhaps I can begin to frame my arguments by recalling a moment when I was frustratingly close to becoming a scholarly apostate myself. Several years ago, I had an extended conversation with a good friend of mine, someone who used to teach at this university, someone whose career trajectory had been remarkably like my own. Same graduate programs, same training as a literary scholar, a similar teaching experience within a research university, and a similar experience as that university's undergraduate dean. I had become a library director, but otherwise our experiences were virtually parallel. And both of us were now lamenting the rapidly diminishing rewards that attended the publication of our scholarly work. Scholarly monographs continued to play a much more important role than journal articles within the academic community. And yet university press books were expensive to create, slow to appear, limited in their press runs, increasingly expensive to purchase, out of the reach of most graduate students to say nothing of undergraduates. And they were viewed so sporadically that, as Samuel Johnson complained during his years in Grub Street, they often arrived stillborn from the press. Why, under such circumstances, should we continue to knock ourselves out in order to produce books that promised so few professional rewards and generated so little academic, let alone popular, demand? Well, several answers lay close to hand, I thought. At the practical end of the spectrum, well, because such scholarly work was expected of us, even following the trials of tenure and promotion and promotion again. At the more altruistic end, and as the tenure documents reminded us, because we were attempting to make an original contribution to knowledge. Or because we had been conducting research and writing critical prose for so long that it had become second nature to us. It was in our blood and we would continue in the same manner in spite of the occasional review and the appropriately small print run. Each of these reasons was certainly true, but my friend contended that, in our somewhat unusual circumstances, there was an even better argument to be made. Such scholarly work offered precisely what was needed, in his words, to keep us sharp. If, as Howard Gardner has argued, there are different kinds of intelligence, Surely there are also different ways to hone those intelligences in order to keep ourselves sharp. One could argue that the analytical skills involved in scholarly research, reading, and writing would not only extend our useful lives in the academy, but would also ensure that we keep our wits about us well beyond middle age. But what my friend particularly had in mind was the fact that, having both entered administration, we were less actively involved than before in the analytical work of our professorial colleagues. At their best, administrative positions require a variety of interpretive and personal skills that might, on closer inspection, impress even the most suspicious academic. But it is also true that most scholarly work in the humanities and social sciences involves much more concentrated analysis and a much longer time frame than do most administrative endeavors. To pursue one's scholarly life through extended research and writing therefore enables administrators, both those on temporary assignment and those who have committed themselves to life sentences, to keep their fundamental interpretive skills in good repair 
and, by extension, to remain in touch with the work of their academic colleagues. Well, I want to make precisely the same argument about those of us who work within libraries, or museums, historical societies, or other cultural institutions. Much as we might wish conditions to be otherwise, it is the rare librarian, or curator indeed, who pursues full-time research for his or her livelihood. Most of us who work within research libraries face a wide variety of tasks, even if our position bears a seemingly single-minded title such as rare book cataloger or paper conservator. Every cataloger or conservator I have known has been asked or required to participate in the sometimes frustrating hodgepodge of activities, training sessions, search committees, advisory boards, review panels, lecture and publication committees, task forces, strategic planning, even, God forbid, institutional downsizing. Every one of you in the audience this evening can easily augment my profoundly unhomeric list. At the Boston Athenaeum, we actually have the phrase, other duties as may be required, in the description of each of our positions. And we mean it especially when cooperation between or among departments is needed. Because of the variety of activities most of us are asked to undertake, it's therefore all the more important that the central responsibilities of each position be clearly defined and successful performance be properly rewarded. Rare book catalogers who are frequently asked to serve on search committees and technology task forces are at some point likely to be personally frustrated and professionally unfulfilled, as well as relatively unproductive. Those of us who take managerial responsibility for such positions and such performances must either revise our, our criteria for a job well done, or better yet, I think, protect those central activities from being eroded by all of the other duties our colleagues are asked to carry out. Curators, for example, are trained and train themselves to perform a number of critical tasks. It's therefore essential that they be provided with the time, resources, and moral support to be as successful and creative as possible. Now, I doubt whether many librarians will quarrel with the proposition I've just made, although some may find it relatively Panglossian during a dry economic season, such as the one we are still currently enduring. It's clearly another thing, however, to argue that colleagues who are already encumbered by the burdens and diversions I have described should also pursue their own research at the same time. How might we make that happen? Ooh, the thunder is perfect. <laughs> perfect timing for this talk. How might we make that happen? The thunder should strike right now. I propose two interrelated components in a program that should provide the working conditions for independent scholarship in a library setting. First, those who pursue or aspire to pursue their own scholarship must sense that they do so within a safe environment. Library directors and their senior managers must follow a common course, articulating the same goals and sending consistent signals to those around them. Nothing, nothing is more insidious than the the sense, real or perceived, that senior management considers such scholarship to be unnecessary or, worse yet, inappropriate. I know firsthand what that environment feels like, 
having experienced it together with my colleagues during a particularly rocky moment at Harvard. A number of librarians wished to form a discussion group in which they could talk about their outside scholarly interests on a regular and somewhat formal basis. The institutional will was so quickly and effectively poisoned, however, that it took years for this enterprise to take root. And when it did, it took the form of a consortium of librarians from a variety of local libraries. The Tickner Society, as it is known, has proven to be quite successful. But its birth pangs, at least among Harvard's librarians, was not easy at all. An appropriate environment for such a society and the scholarship that underlies it needs more than reassuring lip service. However, it must also reside on the bedrock of institutional support and rewards, the second component in what I consider to be a modest and manageable proposal. By support, I specifically mean funding for professional development. Financial resources devoted to professional development represent one of the most cost-effective measures a cultural institution can take. The price tag can be surprisingly low, and a small investment can produce disproportionately large results. Release time for independent work, for instance, costs nothing in financial terms, and rather than vitiating an institution's, quote, productivity, it can actually work to increase it, as I shall later argue. Simple flexibility in determining a colleague's schedule can often obviate the question of paid release time. But even when that is not the case, the occasional leave, whether it be a week, a month, or an extended sabbatical, will easily make up in one way staff morale, loyalty to the institution, intellectual rejuvenation, contributions to scholarly knowledge, what it may appear to lose in other terms. I would wager, moreover, that many staff members would be happy to put up with the disruption caused by a colleague's temporary absence if they knew that similar opportunities were available to them as well. Even when actual dollars are on the table, the relative cost can be astonishingly modest. During my tenure at the Houghton Library, a windfall of $10,000 was offered to me if I could mount an effective argument for its use. Now, the reason it was offered to me, I should tell you the reason it was offered to me. It came into the university librarian's office and somebody put it in a drawer and forgot about it. And it was found months and months later. And they, they knew who the donor was, but they didn't know him very well. But they knew that at some point his name was hooked up with the Houghton Libraries. So they came to me to ask if this was supposed to be contributed to the Houghton Library. And I said, no, I didn't think so. And I said, but I'd be happy to give him a call and find out what he wanted, you know, what he intended to do with it. And I called, and they didn't, they didn't feel comfortable making the call. So I just got on the phone and made the call. And he said, oh, I don't care. Do with it what you want. And so I said to my superiors, here's what I'd like to do. Well, um, the proposal I made was not immediately greeted with enthusiasm, <clears throat> but in the long run, I eventually prevailed. Each year, for five years, two members of the Houghton staff would receive a full-paid one-month leave and a stipend of $1,000 to work on a scholarly project of their choice. Senior members of the staff joined me in choosing the two winners during the first year's competition, 
and those who received rewards <coughs> joined me on the selection committee thereafter. The program eventually encompassed one-third of the library staff. But even those who did not apply for one of these fellowships realized that the pursuit of scholarly projects was consonant with the mission of the library as a whole. The dedication of $2,000 to this program within an annual library budget of over $3 million was a mere drop in the bucket. Or as they say at Harvard, a droplet in a tublet on its own bottomlet. The program was so effective that I immediately sought to replicate it when I arrived at the Boston Athenaeum. And thanks to enlightened funding from a family closely allied with the library and strongly committed to the support of scholarly research, we were soon able to launch a series of 10 Wellspring Fellowships for a staff of roughly 50 members. This, this time round, moreover, I broadened the terms of the competition to encompass original creative work, fiction, sculpture, and the book arts, for example, as well as time spent as visiting fellows at other cultural institutions. The original 10 fellowships have been awarded, and we now fund the program on a permanent basis. Surely an annual commitment of $1,000 within a budget of almost $6 million should not be hard to sustain, let alone to justify. Scholarly support of this kind, modest as it is, will stretch even further so long as it is used for tax-exempt purposes. More ambitiously, an institution can offer continuing research accounts for staff members, as well as book subventions that will assist colleagues in negotiating with the scholarly press. I've sometimes been asked, by the way, um, what one should do if you have too many people applying for one of these fellowships at the same time, or how you deal with a staff member whose application is not as strong as it might be. And my experience has been that it's good to have too many people applying for one of these fellowships in a given year. People are willing to be patient, and if the applications are strong enough, you just assure them that they will have support along the way. And when we've had a weaker application, what we've done is to sit down and work with them. Usually it means that they've, they've put in an application before they've really defined a subject and done any research at all. They're fishing a little bit. And we try to get them started with their research, oftentimes by giving them some financial support to do something like go to rare book school or to be an intern someplace or to take a course some, some place in the Boston area. But why, to return to my initial point of departure, should investments such as these be made in the first place? In addition to the rather intangible rewards I have mentioned, staff morale, staying sharp, contributions to scholarly knowledge, there are tangible benefits as well. Perhaps the most important lies in the fact that scholar librarians normally pursue their research in a number of repositories and therefore learn, through that scholarly process, how other institutions work. This process begins long before an actual visit is made, of course. In order to define their projects and apply for support, scholar librarians need to determine where relevant research materials can be found and how easily they can be accessed, steps that essentially place them in the role of visitors to their own institution. They will soon learn how effective other websites are 
how other electronic catalogs are structured, whether visiting fellowships are available, whether access to certain materials is restricted, what forms of introduction and identity are required, whether laptops and personal materials are allowed in the reading rooms, whether there is an orientation to the library and to its collections, and what kinds of resources are offered to visiting scholars, lockers, photocopying, lounges, access to curators, the services of the reference staff, all of the amenities, both large and small, that help determine the success of each individual scholar's visit. I think there is no effective substitute for a visit of this kind, not even an extensive tour provided by an obliging colleague. You have to participate in an orientation meeting and then work within the library itself in order to gauge how effective your introduction has been, let alone how comparatively effective such sessions are at your home institution. It takes time to determine how well another library's catalog and delivery system work or how knowledgeable and helpful staff members are. Institutions cannot be fully evaluated from the outside. In the process of pursuing their own research, scholar librarians are simultaneously learning about their host and their home institutions. And it's been my experience that they return with a clearer sense of their own library's strengths and, and weaknesses. Their suggestions will not always be accepted, but they will, at the very least, have provoked the right kinds of discussion. Colleagues who pursue their own scholarship also bring another tangible asset to their home institutions, which is first-hand knowledge of how scholarship in their particular fields is being pursued. Methodologies and even ideologies are constantly being revised and reformulated. And it does no one any good to turn his or her back on such developments. Librarians may sometimes view the fashions of the current academic catwalk with healthy skepticism. But such skepticism must be grounded in a clear understanding of contemporary issues and the cultural stakes attached to them. Librarians working at colleges and universities have an obligation, in my view, to know how their professorial colleagues are thinking in order to be able to support their scholarship and teaching. And if it's important for academic librarians to stay intellectually tuned in, it might conversely be argued that this obligation is even greater for librarians at non-academic institutions that also support research. Without teachers and students constantly putting a library's resources to use, it's more difficult and therefore more important, I think, for at least some librarians to remain part of the larger scholarly conversation. It's been my experience that independent research and the scholarly interludes that support it actually refresh rather than overburden individual librarians, providing them with a break in their professional routines and, in many cases, a salutary perspective on how to juggle their various duties and obligations. It's also important to remember that when one's colleagues pursue their research in other libraries, attend conferences, and share their scholarship orally and in print, they are simultaneously representing their home institutions. Among other things, they are implicitly and sometimes explicitly informing the scholarly world that scholarship is valued at their libraries. And this is knowledge that is not lost on other librarians 
as they consider which positions to apply for. Vigorous and visible institutional support for professional development therefore represents an attractive resource as a library seeks to make the strongest possible appointments to its staff. And now another seeming paradox, which is that independent research and publication not only allow individuals to represent their institutions, but enable them to represent themselves as well. This may sound like heresy to some library directors, but I think that it's important for our professional colleagues to be able to speak for themselves as well as for us. Much library work, after all, is collaborative by nature. We rightly value intelligent teamwork, often to the point where individual effort is not even explicitly acknowledged. How many times have I had to insist that a curator or editor's name be printed on the title page and spine of a book? It is psychologically healthy for librarians, or at least for some librarians, to know that they have a life apart from their institutional role, that they alone could shape a particular scholarly argument or discover a particular scholarly treasure, that their name alone could grace a particular essay or monograph. And what is true for our colleagues is perhaps even more important for library directors themselves, who are even more closely associated with their institutions. I'm personally pleased and amused when one of our members salutes me in Boston as Mr. Athenaeum, but it is psychologically helpful for me to possess an identity separate from, and as I have argued, also contributing to my life at Ten and a Half Beacon Street. I began this lecture by suggesting that, among the many other things it does, the continuing pursuit of your scholarly interests has the fundamental virtue of keeping you sharp. It also keeps you young, in the sense that research, reading, and writing draw one into an intellectual conversation that is constantly renewed by the influx of younger scholars. But there's also much to be said for the knowledge and occasional wisdom that come with years of extended reading and research. My respect for my senior colleagues at the Houghton Library and my conviction that they should continue to be able to contribute to the life of our enterprise there led me into more than little hot water during my Harvard library years. I thought that it would make good sense to offer certain retiring members of the staff, curators and catalogers with extensive knowledge of our collections, an opportunity to continue their, their work on individual library projects cataloging single-page European manuscripts, for example, or illustrated 18th-century Italian books. There was already a precedent for such a maneuver. I was simply institutionalizing it on a more extensive basis. Needless to say, my colleagues in the Harvard College Library were not amused. I was reminded that retirement was, by its very nature, supposed to clear the way for new blood that allowing senior members of the staff to remain at Houghton would impede the work of their successors. These were intelligent reservations, but I believe that such an arrangement would work if the ground rules were clear enough. And so I created what I called Houghton Heaven, and what the outside world, I later learned from Terry, called Valhalla. Certain librarians didn't actually retire, they simply moved to even grander quarters upstairs. I displayed my faith in them 
And they demonstrated their respect for me by following my one commandment, which was that those who worked in Houghton Heaven must behave angelically. Don't interfere with the work of your successor. Don't confuse your colleagues about who's actually in charge. And most importantly, don't tell me how to do my job. I can't say in retrospect that this arrangement was perfect. I can say, however, that in a society that increasingly treats both traditional forms of scholarship and older generations with scant respect, we did our best to buck the tide. Virtually every space within the library was alive with library business and, as you will have guessed, with individual projects as well. When the English painter Thomas Gainsborough was dying, he turned to his arch rival, Sir Joshua Reynolds, and said, we're all going to heaven and Van Dyke will be of the company. This is a comforting thought, I suppose, but I would rather strive to create heaven here on earth, or at least within the confines of the institutions in which I've had the privilege to work. I'm aware, of course, that what is one person's heaven can also constitute another person's hell. But the doctrine I have attempted to preach in this lecture is one of mutual respect and understanding. Librarians deserve all the respect and support we can give them. And no matter which metaphors we may choose to characterize their contributions to our culture, as bearers of the keys to knowledge, as loyal keepers of the flame, the roles they perform are central to our understanding of the societies in which we live. I'm not arguing that those keys, those flames, lie solely in the hands of scholar librarians. But I am suggesting, as strongly as I can this evening, that scholar librarians perform essential roles within each institution in which we are fortunate enough to both find and nurture them. Now, that was the close of the lecture I wrote for Terry a year ago. But what I'd like to do is to extend my remarks this evening a little bit in order to talk about two developments that have occurred during the past two years and especially during the past year at the Boston Athenaeum. So if you will indulge me, I'm going to take a few more minutes to do that. I'm going to begin by telling you just a little bit about the newest program we have at the Athenaeum, which is called the Calderwood Writing Initiative. The Calderwood Writing Initiative is uh, a small program that is devoted to a very large goal, which is to improve the quality of writing among students in schools, colleges, and universities in the Boston area, and eventually, by extrapolation, to other places within the country as well. When you next come to Boston and visit its cultural institutions, it's almost certain that you're going to see the name Stanford Calderwood almost everywhere you go, at Harvard, at Boston College, at the MFA, at the Gardner Museum, at the Huntington Theater, and clearly at the Boston Athenaeum. Stan Calderwood was a close friend and supporter of the library. During our capital campaign, he endowed my position, and then once I got to know him, he gave us the support to build uh, a new exhibition gallery uh, in honor of his wife, Norma Jean. And then just before he died, he endowed it. Stan made his money 
by uh, managing other people's money, which is what most people do in Boston. And <clears throat> he liked to tell me over lunch that the only reason he made more money than other people did, and he made a great deal of money, was because he knew how to write and they didn't. And he was very worried about the quality of writing in America. And his dying wish, and this was literally the case, his dying wish to me and to one other friend and to his trustees was that somehow we would use the resources he left behind him to do something about the state of writing in America, even if it was on a small scale. Well, this was quite a legacy to inherit, as you can imagine. And so uh, my friend Peter Wensberg and I, he being a businessman as well as a novelist, did what you would do in this situation. We formed a committee. And it was actually called the Calderwood Advisory Board. It, it, it includes some specialists, including uh, someone um, who just retired from the University of Virginia, Patricia Myers-Bax, a close friend of mine. And we wrote a feasibility study that was accepted by the Calderwood trustees and, as Stan wished, by the trustees of the Boston Athenaeum. And we're now two years into this new program. Stan's original idea was that we would grant writing prizes to those freshmen from around the country who had written the finest essays by the end of their first year. And we would then publish those essays each year as a kind of, as a kind of textbook for writing courses. We may do that. But we decided that that would probably, in fact, most likely reward those who already came to colleges with good writing skills. And so we decided to bite the real bullet and to focus on secondary education, and especially on high schools, although we're looking at middle schools pretty closely as well. And by focusing not so much on the students as on the teachers. And the mantra that has emerged already has been that the Calderwood program is trying to turn teachers into writers so that they, in turn, can become better teachers of writing. It's frightening for us to learn how many teachers can't write at all, how many teachers in public school systems cannot write as well as the students they're teaching. It's been a very eye-opening experience for us. You might call it the wholesale rather than the retail approach. We're looking at the providers rather than at all the consumers. In this summer, for instance, uh, we're sponsoring three intensive two-week workshops, writing workshops, one of them for a public high school in the inner city, one of them for a charter school, and one of them with an eclectic group of teachers ranging from kindergarten teachers all the way to university professors sitting in the same room talking about writing and the teaching of writing. We are investing in conversations between college professors in the state of Maine and the high school teachers in that state who produce the students for those colleges. That's something that isn't normally done. And we're also investing in a program that will link writing centers throughout the state of New Hampshire. Well, I tell you this because I think it's interesting in itself, and I'm always happy to let you know what we're trying to do at the Athenaeum. And it's also allowed us to appoint two new scholar librarians. The director of the program, John Brereton, who is a professor of English, has been a professor of English and director of writing programs at Brandeis and the University of Massachusetts. And some of you will know his name because he's one of the co-editors of the Norton Reader. 
And his assistant, Jenny Desai, who's an accomplished poet and has been a Stegner Fellow at Stanford. But the real reason I'm mentioning it this evening is because this program is experimental and exploratory, and it is subversive. Subversive in the sense that what we're trying to do is to change the nature of writing so that we can change the culture of learning in one school or one program or one college after the other. And that's why it provides me with an interesting introduction to the second development I want to tell you about, in which the culture of scholarly endeavor has actually been changing at the Boston Athenaeum as a whole in what I would describe as a kind of beneficent domino effect. Let me give you some examples. Uh, when I came to the Athenaeum from Harvard eight and a half years ago, I decided that the best way for me to introduce myself to the staff and to our members was to give a couple of public lectures. And so I gave two different lectures on Sir Joshua Reynolds. And over the last seven years, um, I've given a number of others, so I've given eight altogether. Six that are from the book called After Sir Joshua, which Terry showed you, uh, one from the scholar librarian, uh, and uh, one from the book I'm working on now on printing history in the 18th century, which will not, by the way, be published later this year, <laughs> maybe in about 10 years' time. Um, in fact, the, the one I most recently gave, called The Secret Life of Type, I was told was the most successful, and I think that's because at the very beginning, I read in their entirety the rejection letters I received from the journals I tried to place the essay at. Harper's, the Atlantic Monthly, and the American Scholar, all of whose editors said, well, I personally love your, your essay, Richard, but of course I can't imagine that our readers would. Well, no matter. Um, I also uh, was delighted when we appointed our new curator of painting and sculpture a year and a half ago, David Derringer, because David loves to give public lectures as well. And in his first 17 months, has given four public lectures at the Athenaeum, as well as a number of lectures around town. And he's become so successful and so popular that I think that if he told our audiences that he was going to read the telephone book to them, they would be as happy as they could possibly be, although given our audience, it probably should be the social register. But in any case, um, I also, each year, try to give a talk for one of our donor societies called the Bromfield Society. It's our planned giving group. And what I do there, with the help of our curatorial staff, is to give a 40 or 45 minute presentation on recent acquisitions in rare books, manuscripts, paintings, statuary, prints. Um, photographs and drawings. Um, when I was on a small sabbatical two years ago, we had to do something different. And so we arranged uh, a team of curators and conservators who actually made the presentation in my absence. And that was so wonderfully successful that many of my colleagues, this is John Lannan, um, who's not only the associate director, but also because of a recent realignment, a curator of maps, uh, Stephen Nonak, head of reader services, but also now curator of manuscripts. Stanley Cushing, who used to be uh, our uh, chief conservator, but who's now the first curator of rare books. Jim Reed Cunningham, whom we stole away from Harvard to become the chief conservator. And Sally Pierce and Katharina Slaughterback from the 
uh, print department. That team has been so successful that uh, all of them now have responsibilities for giving gallery and donor talks throughout the year. But the real trickle-down effect, I think, is to be found in the preparations we're making for our bicentennial, which will begin in a year and a half from now, February 2007. The centerpiece of the bicentennial is going to be a very ambitious exhibition with a catalog entitled Acquired Tastes, 200 Years of Collecting for the Boston Athenaeum. And it will cover all of the media that we have collected. And it will also bring back a number of books from Count Way, a number of paintings from the MFA and the Metropolitan Museum that we either gave away or, I'm unhappy to say, sold off some time before. The idea is to give some sense of the scope of our collective ambitions over a 200-year period. This is going to be such a large exhibition that it's not only going to be in the Calderwood Galleries, but it's going to extend out into the entire first floor of the library. It'll be on a view for between four and five months. Now, and we're going to take it then down to the Grillier Club in New York in somewhat edited form. Now, Stanley Cushing and David Derringer have responsibility for this rather massive challenge. But what they very intelligently did, and this is the point I'm trying to make in my closing remarks, what they did was to put a call out to the entire staff to see who would like to help them write the catalog and choose the objects. And I can't tell you how pleased I am to say that half of the staff is participating in this enterprise. 25 of the 51 members of the staff are writing or have written their entries. And this includes, well, it includes Will Evans, who's here with us this evening. And it includes not just those you would think would be providing contributions, catalogers, curators, and conservators, but, listen to this, my secretary, Catherine Cooper, all four members of the development office, and our chief financial officer, who happens to have an advanced degree in musicology. I can't tell you how immensely proud I am of the collective effort and the way in which this interest in pursuing research and writing about it in a scholarly way has permeated into the staff of the library. And it's going to be a great pleasure for me to see what that exhibition and what that catalog finally look at in a year and a half or so. And it's going to give me great pleasure to welcome as many of you as I possibly can in Boston to our 200th birthday party. Please join us then. Thank you very much. Thank <laughs> you.